Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. And before we get started, I want to tell you about something really exciting that's just launched on our site. If you go to vox.com borders, you'll see six documentaries done by Johnny Harris, one of the most talented video journalists on our staff, that take you to parts of the world where borders aren't necessarily obvious and remind you that a border isn't a line on a map so much as it is fundamentally a human story and one where fear on one side of the border could lead to mass human suffering on the other. These are beautifully shot. They're beautifully filmed. They're things you won't have heard about before. So have a look. Again, it's vox.com borders. So Zach, Jen, we're going to begin with a collision between two of the most controversial things in the world, Israel and Donald Trump. It is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So that's from this week, with Trump saying he would recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and also begin moving the embassy, the United States embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And that sounds genuinely huge and genuinely historic and a genuine break. Zach, is it? So the big issue with moving the embassy is that it seems like the U.S. prejudging the outcome of what the Israeli-Palestinian negotiation should be. That is saying we recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and not necessarily a Palestinian capital. Trump in his talk tried to avoid doing that, his speech announcing this. He emphasized that the borders of the city would be determined by peace negotiations. The issue is that there are no peace negotiations right now. Everything is stalled out. The Israeli government doesn't seem interested. It's extremely right-wing. The Palestinians are deeply divided. And so if the issue is damaging the peace process— The other issue is that there is no peace process to damage. It's basically already dead right now. Maybe take a step back, though, for a second, because why is Jerusalem itself so controversial? I mean, before we get into is there a peace process, is there not a peace process, is this bad, could have been worse, but why is Jerusalem such a huge deal just in and of itself? Yeah, so the issue is that, like like Zach said, both Israelis and Palestinians want Jerusalem to be their capital. Um, Israel already has a lot of its government buildings, um, Supreme Court, things like that located there. Um, But the issue is that forever, basically, for for decades, it's been U.S. policy not to weigh in on who gets Jerusalem. There have been plans, various peace processes, different ideas of how to divide it. So East Jerusalem for the Palestinians, West Jerusalem for the Israelis. But the issue is there are religious sites that cross these boundaries and that are kind of all in the middle. So there have been ideas before that maybe we should not have anybody have control of Jerusalem. There should be an international body that that controls kind of the religious sites. That way there's no, you know, nobody's fighting over it. Um, So, like I said, U.S. policy has been not to weigh in and to to say that we're going to leave this to the what we call final status, like the final status negotiations. So we're going to leave this to the very end of the peace process when the Israelis and Palestinians sit down and literally hash out the borders with a pencil drawing who gets control, who gets sovereignty over what, who's in control of which religious sites. And, you know, we're going to leave it to you guys to work this out as part of a broader peace deal. We're not going to say you know, who gets what, because the United States has presented itself accurately or inaccurately uh, as this kind of mediator, right? This neutral kind of arbiter that is going to be like, we're just going to bring you guys to the table. We'll help work it out, but we're not going to weigh in on the final status thing. So, So that's why Trump's statement was such a serious break by saying we officially recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. It seemed to suggest that he was essentially putting his finger on the scale. 
So I'm going to take it even further back, because if we want to talk about Jerusalem, we can start with 1948, when Jerusalem was divided between Israel and, at that time, the Jordanians. There was a very literal wall dividing the two. The holiest site in all of Judaism, which is the Western Wall in the Old City of Jerusalem, Jews could not go to. It was controlled by Jordan. 1967, Israel conquered the Old City, including the Western Wall area, and sort of reopened that and made that something Jews could access again. And I lived in Jerusalem, and it's worth noting the geography of it. The Old City, which is really where all of this comes down to, because you have the Jewish quarter, the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarter. You have the Temple Mount, which for Muslims is one of the most uh, holy sites in the religion. For Jews, it is the literally holiest site in the religion. The Old City is tiny, and that often gets lost. It's a physically very small place. And if you're talking about dividing a city, which is hard to do in the first place, if it was a giant space and you put a wall through a giant space, it's one thing. But if it's a tiny space, in the Old City, it's hard to convey how little it is. Dividing the Old City is a, is a physical impossibility. So then the question is, do you divide the area around the old city? And Jen, that gets back to your point of, even if you do that, what happens to the old city? And that's been the sticking point for literally decades and where wars have very literally been fought over it. Right. I mean, and when we're talking about dividing borders and things like that, in this conflict, it's literally so, you know, fraught that there have been fights in past peace negotiations over how thick the pen was used to draw the borders on the map because a thinner pencil would therefore like, you know, make it a little more precise as to who gets which centimeter of land. So that's how fraught this can really get. And so when we're talking about, you know, the president just sort of kind of willy-nilly against the advice of, of a lot of his top advisors, they're not all, um, you know, deciding to kind of do this, this is why it feels so dramatic. And this is why, you know, there's been such a strong reaction because this is quite literally at the heart it's not the only issue, but it is at the heart of the of the dispute in terms of territory, in terms of identity, in terms of religion. It, it really kind of encompasses all of those issues, all in kind of one central location. Yeah, Jen, when you were talking about a debate over the width of a pen in drawing maps on a line, what I was thinking during that whole little description was— boy, we really need the delicate hand of Donald Trump shaping something so precise. Right. And he essentially is taking like a Sharpie and just scribbling. Yes. <laughs> but actually, he's not. Wading into it, yes, but he's not taking a Sharpie. I mean, he could have made this speech, and right, a lot of us expected right. to make no, that's this speech, right. much more damaging, and he didn't. And, I, and so I, I want to be really precise about what he did and did not say, because he did say we're moving the embassy at some point, but they've since said it may take four years to do. It's not happening anytime soon. He did say Israel is going to have its capital recognized by the United States. He did not say the Palestinians wouldn't. He did not say the U.S. is abandoning the two-state solution. He did not talk about settlements. He did not talk about the old city. And so we need to be really precise here. Like, yes, he waded into it, but he didn't take a Sharpie. He actually, and there's been reporting this week to suggest it, you had a lot of senior White House staff, including H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, who spent days trying to like dial back what he wanted to say. So it's possible he may have wanted to take the Sharpie to it, but in the end, he didn't. Right, to, right, to, yeah. to give you one example, after the announcement, I believe Paul Ryan tweeted that Jerusalem would be the eternal capital of Israel. And the language that you hear from the Israeli right is the eternal, undivided capital right. of Israel, right? Because that is supposed to indicate there will be no compromise. And what people who have pushed for this Jerusalem embassy recognition, specifically in the U.S. evangelical community, have wanted is that kind of announcement using the exact precise language of the eternal, undivided capital of Israel. And Trump did the opposite of that. To his credit, it he didn't go off script in any, like, terrifying way. He stuck to what McMaster and other aides had provided and announced an inflammatory policy in the least inflammatory possible way. 
Right. Yeah. And, and, and I agree. You're totally right. I wrote about that uh, on Wednesday after the speech, making that exact point that um, he actually explicitly, not only did he not call it the undivided capital, he explicitly did say, this does not change our policy regarding borders. And we want, you know, the, the final status to be left up to the Palestinians and the Israelis. But I do think there's a broader perception question. When you're Mahmoud Abbas, right, the, the Palestinian president, and, you know, looking at this this speech that Trump gave, and if you're, you know, Saab Arakat, one of the former, you know, Palestinian negotiators, they're going to be very clearly sitting down and parsing out the language to see, like, what did Trump say? What did Trump not say? Talking to diplomats, talking to Jared Kushner, things like that. You know, did, you know, what does this mean for your policy? What are you guys actually saying? But there's also the broader perception that leading up to the speech that was Trump is going to side with Israel, right? Trump is going to weigh in. He's going to do this. He's going to, you know, declare that there was talk leading up to it that he was going to say it was the undivided capital. You know, there were rumors. So that perception is kind of already out there. Um, Hamas and other Palestinian leaders, the the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas, who controls the Gaza Strip, and, and other Palestinian uh, factions also in the West Bank, came out and called for three days of rage. So three days of protest starting Wednesday and then Thursday and Friday. Um, and that was before the speech. And there were protests that had already started before the speech. So in terms of the broader perception, you're absolutely right that he was specific in his language. But I'm not sure how much that matters in terms of the overall kind of impression of what his speech was actually meant to do. I think there's a distinction there. Right. Now, imagine Jared Kushner, who A— I'd rather not. Who A, reportedly— supported this move strongly inside the administration, and B, is tasked with leading Israeli-Palestinian negotiations and a peace push, trying to do that now. So not only is there a perception that this administration is just doing whatever would make Israel happy among a lot of Palestinians and Arab leaders, but one of the guys who's in charge of leading the negotiation push, if it ever happens, reportedly took that side in internal deliberations, and we know about it. Right, the idea of the U.S. as a neutral broker or of any possible peace push in this administration seems fatally damaged. Yeah, although I, I want to push back a little bit on both points that, that you're making. One, the U.S. hasn't been seen as a neutral broker in decades. I mean, that's been sort of the fig leaf that the U.S. would be the party that brings the U.S. and the Palestinians to the table, that it would be a neutral broker. Nobody actually bought that. In kind of the same way that nobody actually bought that millions of Palestinian refugees would be allowed back into Israel, nobody really bought that you'd have— Every West Bank settlement evacuated. Nobody really bought that Israel would willingly give up the old city. So th Trump is right in some ways that there has been sort of this, this fiction around the issue for quite a long time. There's a question, obviously, and, and it's very valid about what's that fiction useful. But it, but it was a fiction. The other thing is that Trump has already made another pivot, which I think makes this pivot in some ways probably less damaging, which is he pivoted mammothly towards the Arab world, more specifically towards the Sunni Arab world, and more specifically to Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And when you think about which countries, if you're looking at Israel's neighbors, would you be most concerned about reaction to this move within? It'd be Egypt, because it's a huge country. It has a peace treaty with Israel. It sees itself as the leader of the Arab world, and Saudi Arabia for its power and its wealth. Both of those leaders are very close to Donald Trump. The leader of Saudi Arabia is very close to Jared Kushner. And what that means to me is it's very possible that this same move done without the pivot to the Arab world would have had a lot more damage than this same move coming after a pivot to the Arab world. Yeah, um, and I definitely, I, I agree that the U.S. has never really been seen as a neutral arbiter. I do think there is a subtle distinction, though, um, just to kind of 
pushback on your pushback just a slightly. I, I, I largely agree. I love it when it gets meta. Yeah, yeah. We're, pushback we're just, on the pushback. We're just pushback. trying to get the listeners to fill out the worldly bingo card. Basically, um, <laughs> pushback on a pushback bingo. Um, so I, I do think there has been the argument that you're right. I don't think U.S. has ever been a neutral arbiter, but there was the idea that the U.S. Because of not only its close relationship with Israel, but also because of like things like arms deals and you know military assistance, um, that the U.S. could essentially push Israel or bring Israel to the table or push it to make the hard concessions. The idea wasn't that we could just you know bring people to the table and make everyone happy. It was that because we have the you know the financial capabilities and the power, and we have some sort of leverage ostensibly, that we could push Israel to do the hard things that it otherwise doesn't want to do to make these concessions. And I think that has completely been destroyed, that idea, that even that we would push them to do anything, you know, harder. Although, you know, again, Trump has kind of made statements on settlements. He said to, to Benjamin Netanyahu, hey, could you slow down on the settlements? So there, there's been and, a little bit. And he bit. actually said that almost in that way. Yeah, literally like, hey, buddy, could you slow down on settlements? Cool, thanks, bruh. Um, so I do think that, again, it goes back to the perception that the idea that the U.S. would in any way kind of push back on, it, it's, it feels more like like the Trump administration is essentially giving Israel whatever the hell it wants. And that is a problem when it comes to potential negotiations. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with Jen, and I'd extend it further. There's neutrality in the sense of being seen as equally favorable towards the Israeli and Palestinian narratives of the conflict. And no one has ever thought the United States— is like that. No one on either negotiating side. But there's also neutrality in the sense of being seen as a credible arbiter between the two sides. Someone who, when they were sitting down and talking, would be able to understand where both sides was coming from and not just push the Israelis in the way, Jen, that you were just describing, but also successfully figure out what the Palestinians might want, advocate for that negotiations, talk to the Israelis in back channels. And and it's just this whole complicated— And be guarantors, right? To provide things like incentives to each side. Like, we have the money and the weapons to say, like, if you guys do this, we'll give you this. So it's also that, absolutely. And and I think, Jen, on on that point, is a really interesting one. I mean, Donald Trump has, since the election, portrayed himself as, I'm a master dealmaker. I know how to make deals. Like, maybe I don't know the details. Maybe we've got all these other problems. But at the end of the day, I know how to make deals. And we were all watching this yesterday, cuddled up on a, a small couch in the Vox newsroom because one TV didn't work. And Zach, when we were sitting next to each other, a point you made is, why give this up and get nothing back? Like, arguably, the U.S. could say to the Israeli government, and, sa- and I said this before, we will recognize Israel having rights to Jerusalem and Jerusalem being its capital if you do X, Y, Z. And X might be free settlements, Y might be withdraw settlements. Z might be allowing some symbolic number of Palestinian refugees. And here, just as a negotiating tactic, Trump has sort of given up the leverage and at least for the moment gotten absolutely nothing back. Right. It's a it's a testament to why details matter, right? There was no, not even in the speech was there an argument for why this was in U.S. national security interests. He was just like, it'll help the peace process and then moved on and didn't say anything, right? It, it, it was a very uncompelling defense of the policy. And that's because— There isn't really a good defense of this as furthering a specific and concrete U.S. national security interest. And in the Washington Post today, there was an account of how the Trump administration came to this determination. And the thing that really stuck out is that they had aides saying, yeah, Trump didn't know anything about the details. He didn't understand the policy at all. He just wanted to do this because he said he would during the campaign. So that article was was fantastic. And it was so fantastic, I actually made notes to myself of two of the quotes from it because these were quotes from Trump defenders. Th- these were Trump friends. These were not Trump outside critics. And, and here are the two. So one, 
it's insane. We're all resistant. He doesn't realize what he could trigger by doing this. Again, a Trump defender, followed by a different Trump defender. The decision wasn't driven by the peace process. The decision was driven by his campaign promise. These are the Trump allies saying, as you're saying a moment ago, that there isn't a substantive reason to do this except for politics. Yeah. Um, I also think it's important to potentially point to Jared Kushner's role in all of this. So uh, Annie Carney at Politico had a, a really interesting piece um, out on Wednesday evening um, after the speech, basically saying that it, the headline was Kushner bets that he can have it both ways on the Jerusalem move. And it was essentially saying, it was it was quoting several sources close to Kushner saying that he was, like this was all Jared, that he was the one who was pushing the hardest for Trump to do this, which is is interesting, right? Because he is the one who has been tasked with the Palestinian-Israeli peace deal. Like that's his big test. It's his big goal that he's going to be the one to do this. And it seems, according to to her read of this and, and talking to, to Kushner's allies, that he seems to think that he has a close enough relationship with the Saudis, with in particular Mohammed bin Salman, um, the, the Saudi crown prince, that he has a close enough relationship with, with the Egyptians uh, and, and various other parties, those being the kind of two biggest ones, that essentially they'll just get over it and move on. And he absolutely seems to think that a peace process is not only like possible, but potentially they're going to announce some sort of like peace plan in early 2018. And just to me, like, I mean, if he does that, great. All right. Like that's, that's fantastic. Good on him. I I wish him all the best, truly. But that's, that smacks to me of just this kind of massive hubris, right? That like, this conflict that has been going on for a really long time, that are all these nuances that he can essentially just throw a wrench in and think, it's still probably going to be fine. I got this. I'm a great deal maker. Like, that's staggering. So there's a thing that's actually called the Jerusalem syndrome, which is when people go to Jerusalem and then start to think that they're the Messiah. And you see them like in different bus stops of Jerusalem muttering to themselves. And I mention this because hubris about the Mideast is unfortunately common to pretty much every president. Barack <laughs> every Obama had it. In George history. W. Bush had it. Bill Clinton had it. And it it just doesn't go away. Like each one thinks if I make the deal and I can, because I'm brilliant, I will make history. Trump obviously being an exception in that the person he's entrusted to it is not a diplomat, not a peace negotiator, not somebody with military experience, but instead a 36-year-old real estate developer whose building incidentally is in near default. But it's the hubris part doesn't surprise me. The fact that they've given it to this person is a surprise. And it's not something that's very comfortable to discuss, but it is important to note that Jared Kushner is an Orthodox Jew. That is a very public part of his identity. It's something that he speaks of pretty regularly. The current U.S. ambassador to Israel is also an Orthodox Jew, one who's spoken about settlements. And, you know, you, you start to go down a potentially dangerous path when you start bringing up the Jewish identity of a policymaker. But in this case, given that those are the people charged with doing this, for the Trump peace team to be made up of not only Orthodox Jews, but very self-proclaimed Orthodox Jews and people who have been openly pro-settlement in their comments and their financial donations is not, in this particular case, irrelevant. Yeah, we, we, we can't talk about this issue without talking about religious identity politics. And the reason that Jerusalem is has become so important to Republican administrations, and specifically this one, isn't just uh, Orthodox Jews and decision-making uh, positions, though that's relevant— it's uh, the the role that Jerusalem plays in the Christian imaginary, in the evangelical imaginary. Right. Uh, and it's the idea of being pro-Israel, not just pro-Israel, but incredibly hardline 
pro-Israel has become a dominant theme in the evangelical community in the past 30, 40 years, or at least the right-wing evangelical community. And but more pro-Israel than some American Jews and some yeah. Israeli Jews. Yeah, I, I don't even know. Christians. I don't even know if being pro-Israel is is the right way to describe it, right? Because you would say the majority of the American Jewish community is pro-Israel, but the evangelical community is identifies with the right wing of Israeli politics. They don't want to compromise on settlements. They see Jerusalem as the eternal and undivided capital of Israel. And this is for a combination of theological and ideological reasons. And that is, even though Trump himself has no real evangelical beliefs and is, is barely, barely even pretends to be religious, those ideas have filtered up through the conservative movement that's dominated in large part by evangelicals. And and is shaping American politics. Like when we ask what the positive reason to do this is, it's because Trump promised a vocal group of supporters that he would do it. And that was his reasoning. And he did it. So this that's the right pathway when thinking about how this decision got made. Right. And you're absolutely right. And I think that's a huge, huge factor that often gets overlooked. Um, just to be careful the way we treat every kind of religious group, I don't want to make it sound like evangelicals are a monolithic right. group of people. There are... Um, evangelicals, especially uh, some of the younger, kind of more liberal evangelical communities who are actually coming out uh, more kind of pro-Palestinian and fighting more for Palestinian rights, um, seeing them as kind of like a, you know, a marginalized uh, group who's, who's been persecuted as well. So um, the, some of them are uh, a little bit more kind of in the center or more even to the Palestinian side. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, in general, the evangelical Christian community, especially for the last several decades, um, in terms of the ones who are the most active inside the GOP, are definitely, definitely staunchly pro-Israel. And that's a huge factor in this. And there's something, Zach, you touched on, which is, is worth going into a little bit, which is this tells you a lot about Donald Trump, right? It tells you not just that for him, it's all about the notch, you know, the win. It's all about the politics. I said I would do this. I'm going to do it. It's all about deriding his predecessors. They said they would do it. They didn't. They're all cowards. I'll do it because I'm strong. But it also tells you that Donald Trump, at the end of the day, pounds his chest, says he's going to do something super macho, and then doesn't actually do it. You know, when it comes to firing people, and that was his catchphrase, obviously, on The Apprentice, he can't. He fires Steve Bannon, but Bannon is still an ally. He fires Corey Lewandowski, the former campaign manager, still an ally. When he wanted to fire Jim Comey, he sent his bodyguard to do it. No, he actually can't do these things himself. So when it comes to personnel, he's not the tough guy. But then when it comes to policy, he isn't either. I mean, you wrote about this for the site. When it comes to China, during the campaign, it was China, China, China. I'm going to bash it. I'm going to—they're raping us was one of the words he used. When it comes to trade, then in office, he's been very soft to China. When it comes to the Iran deal, I'm going to tear it up. He isn't. He's sort of kicking it back to Congress. He's sort of decertifying it, which is the smallest step he could take, but he is not actually tearing it up. And here, he could have said, I'm moving the embassy immediately to the eternal, undivided capital of Israel, Jerusalem. And again, you know, Jen, to your point from before, he's not doing that either. And I think it's worth digging into that. Like, there's the policy question of what does this mean for Israel, for Palestine, for the peace talks if they ever start again. And then there's the what does this mean for Donald Trump? And it, it actually tells you a lot. Well, you're running together, I think, two different phenomena here. One is Trump's tough guy positioning and his uh, kind of personal cowardice or ability to be swayed. Um, that's the firing thing. That also helps explain the China stuff because it seems, if you look at the precise timeline of his language on China, that meeting Chinese President Xi Jinping was really important in his evolution. He got along really well with Xi, and this changed his entire view of China. But 
the Iran deal stuff and and the Israel stuff, it seems very different. From what we can tell, based on public reporting and conversations with people who would know this stuff, Trump wanted to take the most hardline position. He wanted to get rid of the Iran deal. He wanted to just move the embassy. It was his aides that convinced him to back down. So this isn't Donald Trump is wishy-washy on policy. It's Donald Trump has surrounded himself with a national security staff that have made it their job to rein in his worst instincts. And they don't always do it successfully. North Korea is the best example, right, where he's said a bunch of really destabilizing stuff, and some of his aides have actually even furthered the destabilizing stuff. H.R. McMaster has made even more aggressive noises than Trump in some cases on North Korea. But on Middle East stuff, at least, it looks like what's happening is that Trump makes this decision. He wants to stop recertifying that Iran is complying with the Iran deal. He wants to move the embassy. And then aides rush in and figure out a way to make this as minimally dangerous as possible. Right. Although if you were the decider, and to use the George W. Bush phrase, if you were really the macho president, you would overrule your aides, right? So I I agree with you. I mean, you have aides who persuaded him not to do the super crazy, super dangerous stuff, but that in itself is revealing. Because if Trump were the tough guy, he says, he would say, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I hear you. Go to hell, I'm doing this anyway. And he isn't. That's not what he's doing. Yeah, and and I want to be clear. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, right? Like, I I don't want to punish him or, or slam him for not being as crazy and outlandish as he promised to be, right? Like, that's a, if that's the story that that Trump wanted to do kind of more hardline policies and the, the you know, we always joke the adults in the room managed to kind of pull him back to a more moderate version of that. That's a, that's a good story, right? Like, that's a positive thing. That's a success story in my book, um, you know, that he at least has the capacity to walk back and to, in some sense, listen to his advisors, even though he, you know, he wants to, to shove forward, you know, push forward with, with these big policy changes it does seem he is in some respects and in some cases at least a bit receptive to the words of caution from from the people who actually know what they're talking about. And that is something I'm actually glad to see from our president. I, I like that. I don't know. Again, it's it doesn't – I read the Iran stuff especially really closely. And what was going on there wasn't Trump sitting there and listening being like, oh, yeah, that's a good point that you made. It was that he had like hour-long angry meetings with his staff – or he yelled at them and raged because they wouldn't approve his, frankly, crazy ideas, and then eventually backed down because uh, it just was a, a massive fight. He couldn't get everybody else on board, and so decided to like go to some more wishy-washy policy. Right. This isn't an issue of being receptive to moderate advice. It's an issue of uh, of a child being reined in, right? Like when Senator Bob Corker called it adult daycare— He chose that metaphor that is referring to the administration. I think he chose that pretty carefully. Right. And that's still, I mean, yeah, like that's still problematic. Also problematic. There's your worldly bingo for Jen saying problematic. Um, But I still think at the end of the day, like no matter how the sausage is made, like if it comes out at the end that we have a, a moderate policy, I'm kind of okay with that. Like he can rant and rave to his aides all he want for hours as long as at the end of the day it comes out that he didn't rip up the Iran deal and didn't declare Jerusalem the undivided eternal capital. I still think that's a positive outcome. Although it comes back to something we talked about on an episode last week when we were talking about the possible departure of Mr. Charisma Rex Tillerson, the return of robotic Bingo. giraffe Tim Cotton. Sorry, Tom Cotton, excuse me. Robotic um, giraffe? Yeah, you missed it. Yeah. While you were gone, we we coined a new one. Uh. He has a long neck, <laughs> is the thing. <laughs> robotic warmongering giraffe. 
But in any event, you have Trump aides who have tried to rein in Donald Trump, and he tends to listen to them for a little while and get angrier and angrier and angrier, and then eventually shove them out the door. You know, Rex Tillerson, if he is fired, would be the clearest example. Tillerson and Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, have tried to rein in Trump on the Iran deal, on the embassy move, and he's gotten furious about it. And in the stories about why he might fire Rex Tillerson, you know, Zach, we talked about this a bit uh, while you were away. Um, part of it was he just got angry about Tillerson saying, don't do this. And the people he may bring in, Mike Pompeo, the current CIA director, Tom Cotton, a senator from Arkansas who is uber hawkish, these are people who tell him, and has a very long neck, uh, these are people who tell him what he wants to hear, right? So if you have a combination of an easily persuadable aide, and this is something we, we've all talked about before, who sort of goes with what the last person in the room told him, a president who likes to be flattered and told, hey, you're right, a president who does not like to be told, sir, be a little bit careful with this, you may see the people who were saying that, the adults in the room, although I think that was now known to be a bit artificial, but those people being shoved out and the people being brought in not just yes men, but yes men on the most dangerous policies that exist. I do also think in this specific case, when it comes to Jerusalem and the decision, I, I would imagine that the vast number of phone calls that Trump received from foreign leaders, especially foreign leaders who probably are a little bit more calm in tone and he may, you know, listen to and respect uh, and who seem to like actually maybe know what they're talking about. And in particular, King Abdullah of Jordan. So like you had people in the region who are not like outright, you know, enemies of Donald Trump in his own mind. So versus say something like, you know, Theresa May, the prime minister in the UK, if she were to call, I don't know if Trump would care. Or, you know, if Macron were to call, I don't know if Trump were to care. But like having this critical mass of phone calls, I mean, all the reporting was that, you know, leaders were scrambling to call him and tell him why you really shouldn't do this. And here's how, you know, here's how you could maybe do this in a safer way. I do think that probably also lended more credibility to the AIDS argument. Uh, and I'm sure that that probably at least had some effect. I think he's also gambling. And on this one, I don't think he's he's wrong to make the bet. Also, I like to bet and to wager on pretty much anything. But I think he's gambling that because he has close relationships with King Abdullah in Jordan, with MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, with Sisi, the, the president of Egypt, that they will rein in what's left of the Arab street. I think he's banking on the fact that there will be a few days of protest, maybe some violence, hopefully, obviously nothing that gets to serious bloodshed, but that at the end of the day, they see Iran as the big threat. Right. They see what's left of ISIS as the big threat, and they simply don't see this as that big of a deal anymore. About a year ago, I was having dinner with a very senior Persian Gulf diplomat who was visiting D.C., and he made the point, no one in our country thinks that if you solved Israel-Palestine tomorrow, ISIS would go away. No one thinks if you solved Israel-Palestine tomorrow, Iran would go away. It, this issue, it had a resonance in the recent past. It just doesn't have anymore. Iran trumps it. ISIS trumps it. And I, I think Trump, if he's going to make the wager that there won't be a huge, massive, massive outbreak of, of violence, he's probably looking at that and thinking, you know, when I'm in that region— I say to them, hey, I'm going to back you against Iran. I'm going to back you against ISIS. And that matters to them more than whatever he does on Jerusalem. Yeah, we'll see. So far, there hasn't been any kind of massive unrest or protest. But there are a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong and in different ways. The stability of the Gulf states is always dubious. It depends on repression and distribution of favors because the ruling families. That's how they, they're they small. They're not a large portion of the population. That's how they have to do things. And so the risks that a popular demonstration gets out of hand are not 
inconsiderable, especially when you've got really young populations in a lot of these countries and people who could get angry even without the spurring or urging of their leadership, right? This There's still emotional resonance for ordinary people. If the leadership might be more concerned with Iran, I think a lot of ordinary people in the Arab world are still really concerned about the final status of Jerusalem. And so while we haven't seen a massive bout of unrest yet, it's still quite possible that things get very bad, if not now, then when construction on the embassy in Jerusalem starts, the next time Trump travels to the Middle East, the next time Israel does something with the Palestinians, an airstrike, a raid— it's just it it makes the whole situation more combustible in a lot of different and unexpected ways. You know, back in the day, you know, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the the now leader of Al Qaeda, once wrote that there's one thing that you could always guarantee will rally the Muslim world, and that's that's Israel Palestine. That's the plight of the Palestinians, and I'm not really sure that's the case anymore. And Actually, I'm, I'm fairly sure it's not the case anymore. So while we have seen some sporadic protests, there's been like some low-level violence, some Palestinians hit with rubber bullets and tear gas and things like that. Um, but I, I I would be surprised to see the broader kind of uprisings that we saw, for example, in the, in the wake of the invasion of Iraq, like in Amman, in, in Beirut, in you know, Damascus, like massive street demonstrations. The Middle East has just changed so much that that's less of a rallying cry. So all, all I, I'm arguing for is, is for caution, for interpretive— Sure. —against assuming that because we haven't seen any major tender— Sure, right. —or, sorry, any major demonstrations, that there hasn't—that there's been a fundamental shift. What you're saying, Jen, it feels right to me. It does feel like there's been a de-emphasis on Israel-Palestine as the situation's gotten more hopeless and other things have become more pressing concerns for a lot of Arab populations— but this issue is so emotionally resonant sure. and so historically rooted, and there's so many different ways it could go wrong. Imagine a Palestinian gets shot and killed at a protest in Jerusalem. It, it, it just we don't know, and predicting what's going to happen in the Middle East tends to be a fool, <laughs> a fool's errand. Yeah, never so a good idea. All, all I'm urging is caution and concern about what the potential unanticipated consequences could be. Every year, millions of people get the least liked gift of all time: it's underwear. You open the box, you look at it, it's like, eh, thanks, sort of. But we still give it to our family and our loved ones, even if they don't want it. But maybe it's not the underwear that's the problem. Maybe it's the kind of underwear. So let me tell you about MeUndies, the only underwear that makes for an amazing gift and one when they open the box where they won't be rolling their eyes in disgust or disappointment. And here's why. MeUndies has soft, flexible waistband. It's three times softer than cotton. It's made from natural, sustainably sourced fiber. It is something that is very popular in the Vox newsroom, whether you want that mental image or you don't want that mental image. And it's a holiday miracle. So this year, don't give underwear, give me undies. And you can get it for cheaper, you can get it free shipping, and you can get it where if you don't like it for some mysterious reason, you could send it back. So to do that, to get your 20% off the softest underwear and socks you'll ever wear, free shipping, this 100% money back and satisfaction guarantee, go to meundies.com slash worldly. That's meundies.com slash worldly, meundies.com slash worldly. Have you ever walked past a newsstand, let's say you're in the airport, and seen a magazine cover that makes you want to stop and see what the magazine actually contains? Or you've seen cover headlines, something sexy and fascinating, and it makes you want to know more? Or a friend of yours mentions an article in passing, but doesn't do you the kindness of actually sending it to you, and you want to read the thing they mentioned? So remember texture. With a texture app, you don't just get a peek. You get the whole magazine 
and you get unlimited access to 200 other premium magazines like Time, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Wired. And right now you can get Texture for free. So just imagine having your favorite magazines and their back issues anytime, anywhere, forever. So to start a free trial of Texture, go to texture.com worldly. And if you choose to continue, our podcast listeners will get Texture for just $9.99 a month. That's 30% off the listed price. There are gift options available for the holiday season. So go to texture.com worldly to start your free trial today. Again, texture.com worldly. For elsewhere this week, we're going to begin with a bit of music. That is the stirring, sort of heart-pounding Russian national anthem, which you won't be hearing at next year's Winter Olympics in South Korea. That's because the International Olympic Committee just banned the entire Russian team because of a enormous really fun to talk about, as we will shortly, doping scandal. So, Zach, what can Russia actually do and not do in South Korea next year? So, as far as I understand it, Russian athletes are still allowed to participate if they pass a drug test, but they cannot wear Russian colors. There will be no Russian national anthem. They will be competing as neutral, unaffiliated athletes. And it's just like... Yeah, and any medals they win will not be put down as Russia. Like right. Russia will have no medals, no matter what. So there, there's a certain level. It's like, what's the point? I mean, for, for Russians, because a lot of the Olympics is national pride. I mean, maybe for some of these individual athletes, they still want to show that they're the best at their craft. But Russia has has been blacklisted as a country from the Olympics. And I don't, I can't remember the last time something like this happened. So we have a lot to talk about with this when it comes to Vladimir Putin, uh, and we will in a second. But I'm limbering up my fingers because I love sportball, to use gen words. I love gambling on sports, as I was planning to do for the Russia Olympics and Russia, its team in the Olympics, because they're always fun to bet with. But I love this story in particular because it has these bizarre Cold War elements to it. And I just want to go into it a little bit, some of the specific parts of it that are great. So basically, this comes out of an enormous scandal uncovered by the New York Times, to its credit, really great reporting by the New York Times, before the Winter Olympics in, in Sochi, where Vladimir Putin spent tens of billions of dollars to take the Olympics to his country to turn this kind of crappy town into a sports mecca, you had this extraordinarily large doping scandal overseen by, among others, Russia's sports minister, who's now a deputy prime minister of the country, its deputy sports minister, a chemist named Grigory Rodchenkov, now living in the United States in a witness protection program, for a reason that will become clear. So he was keeping handwritten notes about the level of doping given to Russian athletes. And Russian spies, literally Russian spies, were breaking into tamper-proof seals to switch urine, to put clean urine in. They were being stored, these urine samples, in a Russian spy building. You had Russian spies passing samples through holes and walls. You had these drugs being designed, this is one of my favorite parts, to be dissolved in alcohol. More specifically, shivis for men and, and vermouth for women, because of course— because vermouth is a ladies' drink to dissolve your, your doping drugs <laughs> right. in, if of you're, course. If you're going drugs to the ladies, you go vermouth. And this guy, Rachenkov, and this is just absolutely my favorite part next to the alcohol, he had this list called the Duchess List. And the Duchess in question were any athlete who needed fresh urine. And so, you know, it's hard not to laugh when who we Who doesn't about need fresh urine from time to time? Well, now I'm just imagining like a bunch of really thick-set Russian guys in giant black coats carrying around vials of urine. Like, they literally were glasses. doing that. That's I know, good. I know. And that's it's amazing. It's so funny to picture in your mind if you can put together the mental image. 
Jen, we were talking about this yesterday, but there is a serious piece of this, which is Vladimir Putin takes this really, really seriously, this being both the Olympics generally, but also how Russia does specifically. So let's talk about that. Like, what does that mean for him? Right. And, and actually, quickly before I get into that, too, I, it's also the athletes themselves take this very seriously. And the ones, it is unfortunate for the ones who, oh, all three of them, um, but those who were not involved in this or who, you know, maybe were pushed to do this by their government, um, but who are serious athletes and who really, you know, want to com- compete and now have to deal with this. So I do think there's there's a serious kind of human aspect to that. But the inhuman aspect of that would be the Vladimir Putin side. And, you know, I'm really glad that, that you kind of brought up the Cold War spy issue because there's another Cold War angle here. So going back, like, during the Cold War for decades, the Russian kind of approach to the Olympics was not— a subtle kind of, yeah, it's a national pride thing, kind of like it is in America. It was a billion-dollar kind of industry for Russia. It was a massive source of national pride. It was kind of trying to project, you know, we are a global superpower. We have the global superhumans, right? Like, there were—I actually collect—a uh, nerdy fact. I collect old Soviet propaganda, like posters and, uh, and flyers and things. And a ton of them were— you know, were essentially like drawings and sketches of these muscled athletes, men and women, you know, curling and like playing hockey, of course. Um, And it was this kind of broader kind of international point of pride. And, you know, if you go back to the 1980 uh, hockey match between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, it was known as the, the miracle on ice. It was used as this kind of broader metaphor for the Cold War, right? Because it was the U.S. versus the USSR over hockey, this, like, point of pride. And it was this, like, epic battle. And so, you know, even though the Russia today is obviously not the USSR, the way Vladimir Putin has kind of tried to bring Russia back to the national stage is very redolent of the kind of Cold War era, Russia as a superpower. We are important. We are serious. So the fact, you know, for Russia more broadly, the fact that that they're out of the Olympics is a huge ding. It's also personal for Putin, right? So he, you know, like you said, spent tens of billions of dollars on Sochi. Um, He has taken photos, like posing with the athletes. You know, he himself said, like, I'm really sad. I know some of these guys. It's unfortunate. Um, So it's a big, it's a big point of pride. And there's a quote, um, the spokeswoman for the, for the Russian foreign ministry said, quote, they are always trying to put us down in everything, our way of life, our culture, our history, and now our sport. Um, talking about the international kind of community. My, the Maybe second part you shouldn't of that, have taken drugs. It seems like that would have been a better approach. Also a good point. I, the, the second part of the uh, that Facebook quote, which I absolutely love, this is from uh, Maria Zakharova, who was the spokesperson for the Russian foreign ministry. So she lumped in the Olympic ban with World War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and sanctions, and talked about the various evils that the evil, diabolical West has imposed on Russia. And, and I think that, you know, Jen, circles back to a point you made a moment ago, which is Putin sees all of Russian history under him as kind of this return back to, like, czarist Russia before the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he sees as this gigantic political evil imposed by the West. Everything for him comes back to that. It's Russian pride. It's Russia has been wronged by the West. And now it's this, right? So he's got, like, the serious stuff where he thinks Russia has been wronged, i.e. collapse of the Soviet Union, sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. But for him, politics are sports. Sports are politics. And you see that here perhaps more clear than anyplace else. Yeah, I mean, let's not pretend he's deluded, right? He, his government cheated. 
they they set up a massive yeah they set up a massive cheating ring yeah like this and was then a government program just to make that clear this wasn't like some random guys doing this right it he, was a government program I don't to think, cheat I don't think he thinks this is like fake news that the West <laughs> set up to undermine Russian Olympics he's just mad they got caught yeah 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 and I think more broadly it illustrates that uh, the the last point that you were making a second ago Yoki that sports for him are another way to legitimize his government right like Putin in addition to having this thing about Russian history, also is very paranoid about Western attempts to undermine his government's legitimacy and to organize uh, mass protests. He, he thinks his regime is very brittle, and he actually has good reasons for thinking right. that. And so a doping scheme, it sounds low stakes and stupid, and in some ways it kind of is, but winning at the Olympics is another way of underscoring his own successes at restoring Russian greatness. So this is a blow to the Putin regime, however minor, uh, in the sense that one of their plans, doing well at the Olympics, has now been waylaid. I mean, if you look at the way that he's cultivated relationships with some of Russia's most prominent athletes, like Washington Capital star Alexander Ovechkin, who hashtags his Instagram posts with Team Putin, right? Like these, I mean, it's so a big do deal. I, to be fair. <laughs> I don't really do that. It's, it's a big deal for him. He plays hockey games with these professional hockey players, Putin himself, and sets it up. Sets sorry, it, oh, I, I mean, it, sorry. It, it's a he hockey, competes with them. It's also it's a hockey match. I, I just <laughs> Sorry, I just can't let that one go or else we'll get slammed by hockey fans all, all over the interweb. I roll. But, uh, you know, it's also worth noting, Jen, you, you referenced the Miracle on Ice hockey in the 1980 Olympics. In the most recent Olympics in Sochi, Russia was all in on getting a gold medal. And they were all out and actually getting one. <laughs> right. So they lost. And when they lost, they were booed by Russians in the arena in Sochi. Putin made no secret of the fact that he was really, really angry. The Russian coach kind of half-joked that he might not be seen again. Uh, he has been seen, but it was still kind of a half-joke. But the narrative here is interesting because the previous Winter Olympics were in Vancouver. Russia came in sixth. Russia thinks of itself as dominating the Winter Olympics, and, and they didn't. Then they went to Sochi and spent all this money. Part of the money was building Sochi and money wasted. Part of it was this doping program. So it, this doesn't come even just in a vacuum. It comes in and they lost in Vancouver. They wanted to win in Sochi. They doped the hell out of their people to do it. They did, but then they had to give back 11 gold medals from Sochi, and now they can't compete at all in South Korea. Right, this is directly tied to Sochi because they did so poorly there. It was like, okay, we got to make sure this never happens again. Also, just remember, Sochi was an embarrassment to Russia in another way. If, if I don't know how many listeners remember this, but when foreign journalists all arrived in Sochi in you know the couple days leading up to to the Olympics, you know they all got there to cover it. And there's the Olympic Village, and the hotels were like not even finished. The roads weren't finished. There were like stray dogs just ro roaming around. The toilets were like built up against the, the walls so that you couldn't even sit on them. There was like, you know, tiles falling off the walls. It was this huge embarrassment. And and reporters were tweeting these, you know, and I think Instagramming these photos out. And it was a huge embarrassment. It became, you know, a laughing stock. Eventually they got their act together and it became, you know, a nice Olympics. But it was, even that was this huge embarrassment. Like Russia of all places can't figure out how to like build a few, you know, decent, halfway decent hotels where the doors don't fall off or open the wrong direction and don't open. Well, that, that's actually another important point about the Putin government. In the run-up to Sochi, there were a lot of reports about the way in which these construction contracts were handed out. And right. consistent with general practice in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union, 
it was done on the basis of political patronage. It was people who had allies and friends that they wanted to distribute money and favors to. Not who could build a building correctly. Right. And that's the, it's one of the major internal contradictions of the Putin government and the way it set itself up is that it claims to be making life better for Russians. It claims to be restoring Russia to a place of greatness. But that is in tension with its real way of supporting itself, which is getting oligarchs and wealthy businessmen on board and using the state as a fundamentally as a kleptocracy, a mechanism to take from the people and redistribute wealth to people who support the regime. And there's one other part of this, and I think maybe we'll end here, which is this comes a few months before the Olympics themselves. This is a massive blow to the Olympics. One, the Olympics are in South Korea. They are not far from North Korea. Things with North Korea, as we've talked about on the show a lot, are not particularly calm. There have been North Korean threats to the Olympics. There has been talk that the Olympic Village, the Olympics themselves, might even be targeted. There is a quote from Nikki Haley, massively misunderstood, unfortunately, by many of our media colleagues about it not being a done deal that the U.S. would participate. That was not actually what she said. The U.S., of course, will participate barring war. But this is not what you want to have heading into the Olympics, right? You don't want one of the biggest countries in the world being booted out. You don't want another country, even if it's being reported not totally accurately, raising the prospect of not participating. So the, the Olympics in South Korea are not far off. This is the kind of moment a few months away where we want to start getting people really psyched up about them and kind of the stories start to come about athletes. It's all heartwarming. And instead, we're talking about doping, about urine samples being carried by guys in trench coats who are Russian spies, about Russia being banned and their flag being banned and them competing under these neutral colors. This is not the story if you're the Olympic organizers, that you want a few months before the Olympics. I don't know. I'm pretty excited about it. At least the Russians are getting punished for something. Yeah, I actually think it's it kind of makes the Olympics look good. Like, it makes them look a little bit better. Like, hey, at least we're we're cracking down and, it you know, improving their image. Like, we're not a completely, you know, corrupt organization that just lets people dope and do whatever they want and get away with it. So it, in some sense, I do think it's a positive look for them. So that's it for this week. We'll be tweeting out links to some of the stories that we've either written or talked about on air today. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, our engineer, Peter Leonard, our social media manager, Julie Bogan, and we'll be with you all again next week.